0: Hello and welcome to This Endo Life, I'm Jessica Duffin, I'm an endo-warrior, and endo-health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Please consult your medical practitioner before making any nutritional changes or bringing in any supplements. Hi everyone, so today I am sharing a personal experience podcast in the hopes that it might help you. So social media in the summer is full of people's holiday pictures and I think for people with chronic illness that can be quite isolating because we may not be able to travel or traveling can be hard for us to navigate. I have not been on social media much um, this year because you know I had my injury in May and I took some time out from there but This week, I've been sharing some of my videos and pictures of our traveling recently. So I've come back onto social and I've noticed that a lot of people are making assumptions about what it means to see these pictures and they assume that I'm well, that I'm happy and I'm in a good place. And I think it's important to share the reality. To me, traveling is worth it and it's the best thing I've done in my life And I have no intention of stopping anytime soon or settling down, but it comes with ups and downs and it has come with some unique health challenges for me. I'm grateful that endo hasn't really played a part in many of these, except for some cycle disturbances, which I'm working on and shared with you guys last week um, in my interview with Dr. Amy. But it's really been based around my master activation syndrome and dysautonomia, which I was diagnosed with officially last year at the start of my traveling, after suspecting them and trying to seek a diagnosis for the past few years. Now, POTS, which is a form of dysautonomia, and master activation syndrome are associated with endo, and they are very common within our community. I probably 70 to 80% of my clients have both of these. So I thought I'd share my real struggles so that you don't feel alone and so that you don't feel like I'm this perfect health coach who has everything figured out in my health. And so that you can maybe learn from my experiences and hopefully avoid some of the issues that I'm dealing with or at least be prepared for them um, so that you can be, well, better prepared (laughs) than I was. So number one is sleep sleep is an essential but often overlooked part of endometriosis management. Lack of sleep increases pain signals, inflammation, and feelings of depression and anxiety, and it worsens blood sugar imbalances by causing insulin resistance the following day. Part of getting good quality sleep is good sleep hygiene practices like lowering blue light exposure one or two hours before bed, having a completely dark room, a cool room, and earplugs if needed. For me, I need all of those things. I've never had good sleep, even as a child. And now I have my auto- dysautonomia diagnosis, I understand it somewhat more. I experience something called adrenaline surges, where my body gets flooded with adrenaline, making me extremely alert, anxious, and shaky. However, it can be triggered by very small things, and it doesn't really need to get to the point where I'm shaking, it can just be that I'm kind of really just yeah, really wired. And for me, light at night and in the early morning just kind of leaves, leaves me wired. It's like I've just had like four espressos. Typically, light triggers the release of cortisol, which is our in and our stress hormone, and it suppresses melatonin. And then darkness triggers melatonin. Cortisol will normally rise gradually and gently in the AM, and it will peak at about an hour after waking. However, for me, I have low waking cortisol levels, which is actually really common within the endo community because many of us suffer with something called HPA axis dysregulation. And there's evidence on this, by the way, it's not just something that I've seen and observed, it's there's like scientific papers on this. And so when someone doesn't have a great stress response and cortisol is low, adrenaline can increase to make up for it. Now that's not with everyone. Um, but this adrenaline bump is usually just isolated to our stress response, not our waking response. So, if your boss sends an email that stresses you out, if you don't have enough cortisol, you, your adrenaline is taken over in those people who have this low cortisol output. But for me, because I have dysautonomia and I struggle with these adrenaline surges, I also get this adrenaline surge in the morning. So instead of a nice gentle wake up with the morning light that's coming from a nice gradual increase in cortisol, the tiniest bit of light will wake me up completely with a surge of adrenaline, no matter how exhausted I am or whether the dawn is at 4am and it is impossible for me to get back to sleep. I don't feel awake it's so it's not like I don't feel tired I I actually feel exhausted but it is impossible for me to sleep again even with the tiniest sliver of light now back in the UK we managed this by blocking every single source of light at night it was quite the procedure before bed the doors would be covered with sheets and we had a flat pack box that we'd stick in the window and then we'd stuff the edges with um some sort of fabric I think it was tablecloths um But whilst traveling, it's been much harder, and I found it almost impossible to get eight hours sleep on a regular basis. For me, this is so important, as the past four or five years, I was often averaging on like four hours sleep a night, sometimes no sleep at all, due to my chronic long-term bladder pain from interstitial cystitis. Now that that is more or less resolved, which I should do another episode on that to explain to you guys where I'm at, I really want to make up for lost time because the research on the long-term effects of lack of sleep is honestly pretty scary. Now, we tried to be really careful about booking Airbnbs, but up until the summer, our accommodation was through Trusted House Sitters, where you pet sit around the world in exchange for accommodation, which meant we had much less choice in where we stayed. Like We'd look at a location, um, well, if we could, but we didn't necessarily have too much of a choice in, in the place that we were staying at. Um, we took our light blocking curtains with us traveling and so we would put them up in the bedrooms and then put towels across the top and down the sides to stop the light coming through the edges. But sometimes these things were just not enough. If, you know, in Edinburgh, we were staying um, in a flat with giant windows and, you know, we couldn't reach up to the top, like just all you have, we had limited resources. Some of the places we just didn't have enough to like block up all of the light. Now, thankfully, sometimes it would work, Um, you know, if we managed to find a method that was working for these particular windows and particular house, and I'd have a few weeks of better sleep. But other times, we've gone from place to place, and this has been a constant challenge. So this has gone on for months. For those of you thinking, why don't you just get an eye mask? I have one. I have a really good one, but it's not enough. I literally need to be in a black room to sleep. It's incredibly challenging. Now we're booking Airbnbs, um, a lot of them randomly have skylights. And many of them also list that they have blocking uh, light-blocking curtains. Um, so you know when it on Airbnb it says, like, uh, facilities included or something. Many of them have light-blocking curtains, so I'm like, great, we're going to go with that one. But when we arrive, they have them on the normal windows but not on the skylights, which honestly makes no sense to me because the skylights are like the sun's hitting the skylights – You know, sometimes sooner than the other windows and the the house is flooded with light by like 5 a.m. So we've been blocking up the skylights with anything we can find, including my cardboard stand-in desk and a spare mattress, seriously. Um, The other thing that has been disturbing our sleep is noise. Um, I have noise blocking earplugs, but I can't use those foam ones because I mean, I think those ones are the best, um, but I get an allergic reaction from them inside my ear. Um, So I have these ones that suppress noise, but they don't dull it completely. And so early morning noise or late night noise can be a real factor um, and we try our best to book quiet places, we try not to book in the cities, we try to book houses, not flats, but if we do book flats, we ask the hosts, you know, before we actually book and pay, whether it's the top floor, or whether it's sound insulated, etc. Unfortunately, people just want bookings, and so they leave out things. So for example, our current place is a house in the mountains, and we were like, great, super quiet. But the owner has added a corner shop right in front of our house and, it ha- and he's also chained a poor guard dog um, up outside of it and this dog, dog is there 24-7, they never take it for a walk, and the dog starts barking like crazy from about 5.30 a.m. or whenever someone comes near the gates or parks, and then the corner shop opens after that, and people have this habit of pulling up, leaving the car engine on, and gathering outside to talk very loudly, because there are also benches outside. Um, now, because we're choosing often remote places, like right now in the mountains, often Google Maps doesn't show these rows. So whilst we do our best to ask the right questions, there's sometimes things that we just cannot predict, especially things like a dog being chained up constantly, which had I known about, I would have never gone for, given the fact that I seem to rescue multiple animals with every single country that we go to. And I can't go ahead and like release, you know, this host's dog into the wild and unfortunately where we're staying animal welfare isn't very high so there's not there's no one to report it to and the shelters are full so anyway that's a whole other conversation so the pros that the pros of this situation are that we've been resourceful and we brought our uh, light blocking curtains with us um and we've had practice of blocking many windows up but it is really taking its toll on me quite significantly. And I think going forward, the best thing we can do is literally ask the host before booking um, what the blind or curtain situation is like, if they're on every window and if there are any noise factors to consider. It does make me look really fussy and it makes it, already it makes a difficult process of booking somewhere even harder because we have to consider is there enough internet we have to ask them what the upload and the download speed is because we're working you know we have to ask them about the noise around um, around us because my partner is an audio editor and I record the podcast and I talk to my clients you know on zoom so there's so much that we already ask people but we're gonna have to throw this in the mix too Um, but you know the impact that lack of sleep is having on my mental and physical health, I think, makes this an absolute necessity. So it has to be done. So if you resonate with this, I highly take, uh, highly recommend you take some light blocking curtains with you, and you ask as many questions as you need before booking your trip. At the end of the day, if the person is going to be a good host, um, they're gonna, you know, want to ask, answer your questions. Okay, so number two, the next health challenge that I've been experiencing is heat intolerance. As someone with dysautonomia, I struggle with temperature regulation. And so when it's cold, I'm extremely cold. And my feet, ankles, wrists and hands literally hurt to the point where I can't sleep. And when it's hot, it feels absolutely unbearable to me, like unbearable. I I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. I feel so unwell. This has gotten much worse in the past four years since my dysautonomia really flared up and became a big part of my life. Um, I've always had symptoms of dysautonomia since I was a teen, but no one knew what it was. Um, and it didn't affect me to the point that it does now. Um, I previously, heat didn't cause this level of struggle. I didn't like it, but I, I didn't feel this ill with it. Unfortunately, I think that this heat intolerance is worsened by other factors. I have to wear 50 SPF on my skin because I'm very pale and there is a history of skin cancer in my family. Um, And I have tried so, so many sunscreens um, within my budget. And no matter what I try, they all suddenly make me feel extra sweaty and extra hot, like my skin is suffocating. As soon as I put them on, it's not like it builds, it's like I go from being able to tolerate the heat, you know, in the house and I put my Lotion on to leave, and I just, it's unbearable. I really don't have an answer for this yet because sunscreen is important. Um, I wish I could get away with wearing less sunscreen. I honestly, I hate it, but I can't be out in midday Mediterranean heat without it. Um, I have even thought about designing and making my own sun protective clothing because A, I can't find any whilst traveling, and B, the designs are awful from what I've looked at that are available in the UK so I don't know this may be an option you know I, I studied at London College of Fashion so I'm always interested in fashion and surely I can't be the only pot sufferer who struggles with this and would benefit from some fashionable sun protective clothing. Um, I, ha- I literally have cute designs already in my head but I don't have a sewing machine with me so <laughs> that's definitely a bump in the road another issue which I'm embarrassed to admit to but I think we can all agree that you know health problems don't occur in a vacuum and we unfortunately have to navigate them in real life mixed up with all of our messy bits um, but that is my dysautonomia causes me to have spider veins in my legs due to the circulation problems it causes and as some of you may know I have a history of an eating disorder it's not currently present but definitely the um some of the kind of mental issues that comes with haven't left me and I also have um, body dysmorphic disorder too so both of those were do- diagnosed many years ago in my early 20s um and so I can feel very insecure about my body and I tend to obsess about something once it starts bothering me. And for me that is currently my spider veins. I don't even notice them on other people nor do I care or think they're a problem but on me, I feel really, really distressed by them. So I cover up my legs with either long skirts or trousers. When it is 36 degrees in France or hotter, um, and it feels like you're wearing a tent around your legs and it's just trapping all of the heat in there, it is not fun. For some people, you know, putting more layers on and covering up actually keeps them cool. But for me, it just seems to make it much, much worse. I need air circulating around my legs and arms. You know, for me, I think a perfect summer outfit would be shorts and like a teeny tiny top. Like That would be the best thing for me. A big hat and some shade. But due to my mental health and my obsession with my legs, I am constantly in this place of managing my self-esteem versus my physical health. Um... And for someone listening who perhaps doesn't struggle with body dysmorphia, this may be really hard to understand. And I know many people, you know, I know many people who will wear what they want and just dress comfortably and not care what other, thing, other people think. But for me, it leaves me crippled with anxiety and negative thought patterns. Um, and it is just not healthy for my state of mind. The solution, of course, would to either get therapy or some lighter clothing, both of which cost extra money that I don't currently have and very limited access to what I can get clothing wise with where I am at the moment. So I'm working with what I can. I have been doing circulation massages and exercises on my legs to improve blood flow whilst also wearing long skirts with wedges that allow for some air circulation around my ankles. So I'm five foot three. And if I wear flat sandals and a long skirt, which like I do, but when I do, there's just no space for air to get like under the skirt because my skirt is basically reaching my feet. But when I'm in heels, so I've got some really cute, very lightweight um, Y2K wedges. I got them a few years back and, um, they're just my favorite, Um, very comfortable to walk in. So if I wear them, there is this extra height that kind of allows air to come in around my ankles. So that can help, but it's not, it it helps like by 10%, right? But it's better than like, if I didn't have them on. We of course tried to stick to the shade as much as possible but it's not always realistic if you're walking through a French you know farmer's market or you're hiking up a Bosnian mountain <laughs> but, but you can be sure if there's shade I'm walking in it. I'll find the smallest bit of shade to walk through down the street um, and we tend to stop regularly so I can just take a moment to regulate in the shade and when we stop to eat as we often make picnics you know we're, we're traveling on a budget so we're not, we're not eating out. Um, we're making up picnics. we're getting food from the farmers market, um, which is just lovely. Um, we always sit under a tree um, in the shade and ideally near water if we can find any um, as it's often cooler near a waterfront. so I find that like really refreshing. I would love to also find, you know, one of those battery-powered handheld fans. I think that would be helpful. Um, and I swear they sell them everywhere in the UK every summer. But I've not been able to find any so far on my travels. I just don't, I don't know, the British don't cope the heat. So they need those things. Um, and now we're not in the Schengen area. It's proven extremely difficult, basically impossible to get anything shipped in. Um, so I can't order them online either. So lately I've gotten to the point where I've actually avoided going out on the days when it's the hottest. And this is really frustrating because we are working remotely Monday to Fridays. So the weekends are our only times to explore. And when we're losing a day because I'm too hot, it feels like a waste of money, time and experience, especially because right right now we're only in Bosnia for a month and we've missed at least two days because of the heat. Um, However, you know, I do think that I also think it's important to look at the positives and not to like spiral about these things and not to be like, oh, everything's ruined because of my health, you know, I, I don't find that for me personally, it doesn't help me. Um, but we have both appreciated the time to rest. So when we have taken those days. It's been nice because we're often working during the weekend and we're out all weekend, and that can be really tiring, especially for me. So the pause is actually nice. It's just that I I feel this pressure to be exploring as much of the place I'm in as possible. Um, And but the other nice thing is that in the mornings or the evenings when it is cooler, um, on those days that we've taken off, we've tried to get out for a cycle or a walk, and because we choose scenic areas to be in, like that's kind of the point of why you know, why we're traveling, we want to be in areas that feel nice to be in. Um, It feels good to just get the chance to explore those a little rather than jumping in the car and driving away from that for two hours to some tourist site. Um, So there's definitely some pros of that. Of course, there are some really obvious POTS management strategies that I use daily, like staying hydrated, taking in a lot of salt, elevating my legs, exercising regularly, and so on. But none of these are really moving the needle on my heat struggles. So that's something that I'm working through still. I mean, I was only diagnosed with dysautonomia last year, so and I really got given two sentences of what to do about it. So understanding my body and its reactions to the heat and what helps it is still... Very much a learning curve and is going to take some experimentation. My final struggle is my heart pain and my palpitations, which are caused by a mix of my muscle activation syndrome, which is um, triggering the heart pain, and my dysautonomia, which is triggering the palpitations. For the first four or five months of the year um, of this year, I had really gotten them under control um, with my high dose quercetin and monitoring my intake of caffeine and and certain stimulating foods like cacao. However, once we got to France, my chest pain became a daily occurrence, like multiple times a day um, and through the night. And then after we left France and traveled through Europe over to Bosnia, it changed from heart pain to really severe daily palpitations that leave me breathless and literally cause my body to shudder. Obviously I have had all of this investigated last year when I was seeking my diagnoses and unfortunately I haven't really been given much more advice than what I was already doing um, which was to stay on the high dose antihistamines and eat more salt but both instructions were very vague and it's really been up to me to put my coaching hat on and research the doses and how much potassium versus sodium I should be having and what's safe and what's not because actually it's it's not um, the easiest thing to get electrolyte balances right. And it can be quite dangerous if your potassium levels go too high. Okay. Not quite. It can be very, very dangerous if your potassium levels go too high. Um, Now in France, we were eating more histamine foods because what's available in the supermarkets is different than in the UK. So um, we were just limited on what we could get. And also just uh, out and about in the farmer's markets, like I was just enjoying more histamine foods like olives and stuff like that. Um, So like fermented foods, cultured foods. So I think us leaving there is what allowed the chest pain to ease. But since then, I am really grappling with these palpitations and what's triggering them. I think it's my electrolyte balance. Um, it normally is in the case of someone with dysautonomia, but no matter what I try, whether I seem whether I increase my potassium-rich foods, whether I add more salt, whether I take magnesium supplements, etc., I don't seem to be able to strike the right balance. I may feel like I might get it into a good place for like a couple of hours, and then I drink a glass of water, which changes the balance again, and this, the symptoms kick off again, and they're like terrible for the rest of the day. Um I'm also curious about whether my B12 or folate are low which could be causing these symptoms and I have a history of these two being low but I can't get tests shipped to the non-Schengen areas so I have to wait until November to do that. Um I would also love to check my sodium and potassium levels in my urine. Um my salt was extremely low last year. But again, I can't order these tests right now because of the restrictions, um, the EU restrictions. Um, I've been struggling with this most intensely in the past month since we got to Bosnia and I've tried different sodium amounts and different electrolyte drinks, et cetera, but I'm still stuck. So my next step is to consult my tutors and my colleagues to get their opinions. Obviously, that is a benefit of being a health coach. I have all of these wonderful minds that I can talk to. And if we're still stuck, um, I suppose I have to book in with my cardiologist and have a remote appointment. But unfortunately, that's a couple hundred pounds. So I've got to, you know, find the money in my budget for that or bring it in. Um, The good news is I have a heart monitor and a blood pressure monitor with me. Um, And I should tell you guys the name of my heart monitor in case any of you need it. Um, it is called Cardia with a K, Cardia with a K. Um, it wasn't cheap. I bought it when my heart symptoms were out of control. Um, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. It was before I was able to afford to see a cardiologist and the NHS weren't helping me. Um, I think it was about, no, it was 99 pounds, I think. Um, and it can be helpful to monitor your your heart symptoms. But it's not, not an absolute necessity. But I didn't know what was happening at the time, so I really wanted to record it. Um, so I, I check both of those almost every day. Um, and though I have seen some lower blood pressure numbers and some higher heart rate numbers, like my, my resting heart rate is a little bit high, um... So they're, they're higher than normal for a normal person and or my blood pressure is lower than normal for a normal healthy person. They're not abnormal for someone with dysautonomia, right? So they are what you would expect from someone with dysautonomia um, and they're not at dangerous levels. So that's reassuring. Um, it doesn't stop me from worrying, but it is reassuring. Yeah. Um, I would really recommend if you have dysautonomia to take a blood pressure monitor with you um, whilst you're traveling. Um, most of them will also check your pulse and you can just check in with that regularly if you're experiencing symptoms. I mean, what would be really interesting for me is we're very high in the mountains and altitude changes can affect pots. So I wonder whether when we move, which we're moving tomorrow to Montenegro, whether this is going to change. Because I've tried so much, that should help, and it hasn't. So that would be interesting. So the palpitations are honestly distressing and worrying for me. Um, they're with me pretty much every minute of every day, um, but they certainly haven't ruined travelling. Um, there are always going to be ups and downs with my health, wherever I am, wherever I am in the world, um, because I have about five different chronic conditions, and life happens, and it triggers these reactions. You know, I can't live in a bubble and not experience life however I would certainly like to get these under control so that I don't have to go to bed at night and wonder why my heart is causing my chest to shudder and I would of course enjoy myself more and feel more carefree if I wasn't struggling with these symptoms but I don't regret choosing to go traveling and I would rather be experiencing these symptoms out here on a gorgeous mountaintop than back in the UK where we were living before that's just my personal preference, right? There's nothing wrong with being a homebody. I'm just not that. Um I'm lucky that we are going to be continuing to travel for the foreseeable and I am learning how to travel with these conditions and how they affect me. So, I'm hoping in a few months time I can experience travel in symptom-free or with very low levels of symptoms because I've learned what works for me and what doesn't and what affects me and, you know, and all the all of these variables that I'm adjust into and haven't had to experience before. Um, So fingers crossed in a couple of months I can come back and share with you what I've learned and and what helped. Okay so that's it. I hope that this wasn't too depressing um, but instead shows you that it is possible to travel with chronic conditions but that some tailoring may need to be made along the way. Um, And I hope that my experience gives you some ideas for your own holiday travels, if you have any planned now or in the future. And I will wrap up to say that I'm really confident that whether it's this year or in a couple of years, I don't know, that I'm going to be in the place that I am at now with my endo, with my dysautonomia and my MCAS. You know, before I trained, it took me a couple of years to get my endo, in a really good place. And since then it's never really defaulted back to being out of control and bad. And I don't really have to like actively worry about it. There's, there's strategies that I use and there's things that I do. Um, but I know what to do and I know how to manage it and it never gets out of control. Um, and it's just, for me, it's like the, the chronic condition that I don't have to worry about. Um and I never thought that that would be the case. I didn't travel for so long or was so worried about getting on planes and stuff because of my endometriosis. I didn't think that what I'm doing now was possible for me. And so for those of you whose symptoms are endo-driven, I want you to know that I did it. <laughs> and um my endo symptoms are not the thing that are thing that's holding me back. they I mean, they're practically non-existent. So it's these other conditions which are associated with endo that are my current challenges. Um and it's about trial and error, and you know, for me, continued training and education um until I find out what works for me. But I hope that that is inspiring to show you what is possible. Um, and yet also, you know, realistic. And I, I hope that it shows you that you're not alone, that, um, I'm going for it too, but I'm still out here living life and kind of following my dreams. All right. That's it for this week. I will see you next week. So if you found this episode helpful and you want to learn more about living well with endo, or you'd like some further help, I wanted to remind you of the resources I have available to you and how you can work with me if you'd like to. So I obviously have hundreds of these episodes for you to binge on, and I do have two free columns. So one on EndometriosisNet and one on Endometriosis News, and there are countless articles on there to help you thrive. You can also sign up to my newsletter for tips and updates. I have a digital cookbook and nutrition guide, This Endo Life, It Starts With Breakfast, which you can download for just 9 And if you want to go that step further, I have short and budget-friendly masterclasses in nutrition, surgery prep and recovery, and natural pain relief. I also have a DIY course, Live and Thrive with Endo, The Foundations, which you can sign up to at any time at a really affordable price point and you have lifetime access to, so you can go at your own pace and literally look back at it years down the line. This four-module course will provide you with the most effective yet easy-to-digest tools and strategies to reduce your pain, fatigue, endo-belly, brain fog, and hormonal symptoms and allow you to live your life again. Each lesson includes the core foundational needle movers that I have seen work for my clients time and time and time again. You get all the essential information that you need to be endo without the overwhelm. Finally, you can apply to work with me one-to-one. This is my most advanced and personalized offer, so I only take a handful of clients. To find out the details and the application process, head to my coaching page. The links to all of these resources and ways to work with me are... Are in the show notes. And finally, to help others find this podcast and reach as many people with endo as possible, please leave a review and please share with your friends and family and subscribe.